I'm going to invite you to turn to John chapter 19. And this morning we are looking at the first 16 verses of John chapter 19. I'll actually stop reading halfway through verse 16. So let's listen to God's word this morning. Give your attention uh, to the reading of God's word for his glory and for our edification. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him, and the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you so that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Take him yourself and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. Uh, The Udayoi, I hear that clearly means the Judean leaders, The Udayoi answered him, we have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. And he entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you? And authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Udayoi cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement and in Aramaic, Gabbatha. Now, it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. And he said to the Udayoi, behold your king. And they cried out, away with him. Away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? And the chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. The grass withers, the flower fades, the word of God endures forever. Today's passage concludes the trial of Jesus. Jesus is on trial before Pilate, the Roman governor. Jesus is on trial before the Judean religious officials. Uh, These verses are highly ironic because it looks like Jesus is on trial, but actually everyone else is on trial. And this passage should help us discover that we are also on trial for our fears, for our ambitions, 
for our envy, our hatred that leads us to do what is happening in this text, judging Jesus. And there's too much in today's passage to do it justice, so I just want to point out something about Pilate, how he is caught between Jesus and the crowd, something about Israel's leaders, why they are so intent on killing Jesus, and something about Jesus himself, that this is actually, if you can believe it, his coronation as king. So let me start with Pilate. We mentioned last week that Pilate's job as governor of Roman-occupied Judea was to keep a lid on the pressure cooker of competing factions and groups in the region. And Pilate had to do this well if he was ever going to get out of the dust bowl of Judea and get back to a cushier position with the emperor in Rome. And the section about Pilate starts back in chapter 18, verses 28, and it goes through verse 16, and it's actually composed of seven scenes. And over seven scenes, Pilate moves back and forth between the crowd and Jesus. 1829, he comes out to the leaders. Then verse 38, he's, uh, sorry, verse 33, he's inside with Jesus. Then verse 38, back outside to the crowd. 19, verse 1, inside to have Jesus flogged. Verse 4, he goes out. Verse 8, he goes in. Verse 13, he goes out, in, out, in, out. Inside where he's drawn into a conversation about who Jesus is. Outside where the voices are growing louder and louder that Jesus should be crucified. And the movement is, I think, John's way of depicting for us something that's happening in Pilate's soul. He is caught between Jesus and the crowd. Uh, The leaders, uh, I like Dale Bruner's term here, the senior pastors. uh, The senior pastors have brought Jesus to Pilate and call him a criminal. Pilate is unable to find any guilt in Jesus. At the end of chapter 18, he gives those gathered the opportunity to pardon Jesus through this custom of releasing a prisoner at Passover. But the people choose Barabbas, a terrorist, instead. So the innocent one is condemned and the guilty one goes free. Pilate has another idea. At the beginning of chapter 19, he flogs Jesus, dresses him up with the crown of thorns, has the soldiers mock him, and seats him beaten and bloodied before the crowd. Now, this may seem like an odd way to treat someone that you just declared guiltless. I think what Pilate is saying to the crowd is, look at how pathetic he is. I've humiliated him. He's no threat to anyone. I still don't find any guilt in him. How about we just release him? But again, the leaders object. And then we discover that Pilate is not just caught between Jesus and the crowd. He's caught between his fears and his ambitions. Uh, In verse 8, upon hearing that Jesus is called the Son of God, we read, Pilate was more afraid. Now, Pilate was a pagan. He was not a cultured atheist. So he's troubled at this news that Jesus is a son of the gods. 
He goes in and asks Jesus where he is from, but Jesus is silent like a lamb before its shearers. Pilate threatens Jesus with the power that he has, and Jesus very coolly replies, you'd have no power over me if it wasn't given to you from above, which is a great verse. You are who you are. You have what you have only because God has said so. You are never the most powerful or the most important person in the room. And this shakes Pilate. And he redoubles his efforts to release Jesus. But Pilate's fear runs right into conflict with Pilate's ambitions because the leaders respond in verses 12 and 13 uh, that if Pilate releases Jesus, he is no friend of Caesar, which was an honorific title given by the emperor, a title that you could earn, a title that you could lose, And they are reminding Pilate of his precarious position. He governs Judea on behalf of the emperor, and Jesus is claiming to be a king. Word could get back to emperor that Pilate did not condemn a rival to Tiberius' throne, and that would not end well for Pilate. So what does Pilate do? He immediately moves outside to his throne to render a judgment against Jesus. Think about this. Despite all the power and authority that Pilate had as the governor of Judea, Pilate did not do what he pleased. Pilate did what pleased the crowd. So in the end, his king was not Tiberius. And his king was not Jesus. His king was the crowd. Uh, Crowds are powerful. Uh, Exodus 23 says, Don't fall in with a crowd to do evil and pervert justice. Uh, It's a warning about the deceptive, destructive power of crowds. Uh, People talk about the psychology of crowd behavior. You can see it today on the news and with the emergence of the internet and social media, we now have new kinds of crowds where we let ourselves be controlled by what others like and hate online, commend and criticize online, follow and cancel online. We all have to make a decision to stand with Jesus or the crowd. If you want to serve King Jesus and be devoted to King Jesus, you can't serve and be devoted to the crowd. How many of your dreams depend on the approval of a crowd, your peers, your family, your church, your work? Here's a great comment I came across this week. If your dreams depend on the crowd, you have the wrong dreams. I think Pilate shows us something important. Being afraid of what others think keeps us from listening to Jesus. We're so busy managing how other people respond to our actions and decisions, we can't hear and obey the voice of Jesus. So that's something about Pilate. Let me say something about the Jewish leaders. I'm sensitive here. Uh, You should be sensitive here. 
to how passages like this have been misused for centuries, really millennia, to propagate mistaken notions of Jewish corporate guilt for Jesus' crucifixion. Uh, In John's gospel, Judas delivered Jesus up. The chief priests delivered Jesus up. Pilate, the Roman governor, delivered Jesus up. And wait for it, Jesus delivered Jesus up. The same word, delivered up, that is used for Jesus' betrayal is also used for Jesus delivering up his own soul to God. Christian theology has always maintained that the human agents responsible for Jesus' death are irrelevant. He gave his life willingly as a sacrifice for sin. Uh, It's also very difficult for people to read the gospel stories and remember that they were written long before the parting of the ways between Judaism and Christianity. Uh, In other words, there was no thing yet called Christianity separate from Judaism when John wrote this account. He's not giving a critique of another religion. He's making a statement about the official leaders of his own religion. The question is, though, why are the leaders so intent on killing Jesus? What would lead the chief priests of Israel to declare, we have no king but Caesar, which is something that's just crazy for a high priest to say. Every passage of Scripture proclaims that God is the true king of Israel. In 1 Samuel 8, God plainly says that the desire for a king like the nations is rejecting and disowning him as king. I think there's something going on here. I think it happens to Christians too. It's possible to keep all the structures of the faith and yet deny the core of the faith. We go to church, we read the Bible, we tithe, we live ethically. We started because we were serving God. And at some point, God disappeared. And we just kept on doing all the same stuff. But we were driven by something else. And when that thing that really was driving us was threatened, maybe it was our control or our comfort, uh, maybe it was our politics or our expectations, when God doesn't act the way we expect Him to act, He doesn't reward me the way I expect Him to for my obedience, what happens? We rage. And we say outrageous and nonsensical things like, we have no king but Caesar. I actually think this is something we see all the time. You thought someone was a mature Christian. Then the bottom dropped out or some idol was exposed in their life or we're all suddenly in a season of societal unrest like we've been going through and that person responds in a way that shocks you. Because somewhere over the years, the God of the system disappeared and all that was left was the system. And that person kept going, and you couldn't see the change until the bottom dropped out. I think it's interesting that in our passages, there are, in our passage, there are two groups who face a decision about Jesus. Pilate and the Judean leaders. Pilate politely ignores Jesus. 
the Judean leaders shake their fists at Jesus. Pilate refuses to decide about Jesus. The leaders decide against Jesus. The leaders cry, crucify him, crucify him, and Pilate does nothing to stop them. These are just two different ways of doing the same thing, judging Jesus. You might find one more polite than the other, or one might give you more existential relief. But the text invites us to see they're just the same thing, and they aren't different at all. So let me say something about Jesus, because what we have here, if we have the eyes to see it, is not actually the judgment of Jesus. It's actually the coronation of Jesus as king. It's not that he's being judged. It's that he's being crowned, if you can believe it. In our passage, Pilate declares Jesus guiltless three times. Jesus is crowned and robed in purple and hailed as king. Pilate says, behold the man, eke homo, that famous phrase, the eternal word incarnate. In verse 11, when Jesus says, he who has delivered me over to you has the greater guilt, Jesus is deciding and apportioning guilt. That's the function of a king. And then Pilate sits on his tribunal at the hour of the Passover lamb and declares to the leaders of Israel, behold your king. And I like this comment by one commentator. Official Rome tells official Israel from the most official judicial space in Israel at one of Israel's holiest hours exactly who Jesus is. Uh, Yeah, there's humiliation. There is depersonalization. There is cruelty. But Jesus is being proclaimed as king. His coronation is totally devoid of glory and majesty and power because that's the path to his kingship. It's his choosing not to turn away from the cross. It's his willingness to suffer and pay the price that love demands. That's the power under that we talked about last week. Uh, How should we see, how should we understand what's happening here? Uh, Martin Luther, you know, not always my favorite theologian, talked about a theology of the cross. And by a theology of the cross, Luther didn't mean a theology about the cross. He didn't mean like, well, the cross is atonement, it's propitiation, it's reconciliation, it's redemption. He means something different. Uh, As human beings, we are profoundly bad at speculating about who God is and how he works. We see someone who is making progress in faith, and life, or the church that's growing by leaps and bounds, and we say, God is there, God is doing that. We see someone who lost their job, who got sick, who fell into sin, the church that's struggling, and we say, God is not there, God is not doing that. 
Luther called this a theology of glory. It's a negative term. Uh, God is in the places and doing the things that look glorious to us because his definition of glory must be the same as our definition of glory. A theology of the cross, by contrast, understands God actually reveals himself in the place no one is looking, in the bleeding, dying, crucified flesh of Jesus. Uh, He didn't rend the heavens and come down in a glorious sparkling chariot with trumpets and banners and the like. He came in the shameful, painful humiliation of the cross. And the theology of the cross sees that God is present in suffering and the cross, and that is still his way of working in the world. Uh, too, Too many people think, well, you know, God sent his own son to a cross, but his goal for my life is that I would be healthy and successful and live happily ever after. They look at the cross, but they do not look through the cross or behind the cross. I think narratives, to wrap things up here, I think narratives are an invitation to find ourselves in the story. Uh, Every day we are faced with a choice. Will I stand apart from Jesus like Pilate and do what is safe and convenient and good for me? Will I stand against Jesus like the Judean leaders because I'm mad he is not doing what I expect or giving me what I want? Or will I stand with Jesus in his shame and humiliation, in the hard moments, in the scary moments, even when it hurts or it costs or it doesn't get us ahead? Because he is my king. And because I see his beauty in this passage, and because I recognize that life is not always as it seems, As one person has said, in God's economy, there is a mighty reversal of appearances. The meek rule, the least are the greatest, the poor are rich, the weak are strong, the unlearned are wise, and the beaten, defenseless Christ was holding court on Pilate, the Roman Empire, the Sanhedrin, and us. Let's pray together.